Scripture reading tonight is from the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Okay, first, a little lighthearted acknowledgement. It is really difficult to stay focused on a sermon for 20 to 25 minutes and not have your mind wander at some point. So 
When you realize it's time for your mind to wander, I want to give you a question to ponder during that time so you're not thinking about tomorrow, okay? The question was raised before the service, which was, when was the last time in this church you heard a sermon from the book of Revelation? Okay, now I don't want you to think about it now, but later, you know, when your mind... And then as, as you leave after the service, you can tell me the answer. All right? Now, that's the end of the lightheartedness. Now, the next piece is my confession. When I went to seminary in 1960, that's a long time ago, I think the very first sermon, no, the second sermon text I was assigned was from the Gospel of John. It's in the first chapter, verse 29, and it's John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I was assigned to write a sermon on it, and I did. And it was a, must have been a really good sermon because I used it every Sunday in a different church for a year. And by the end of the year, I mean, I really had that one down, and maybe I'll preach it for you someday because it's, it's still a good sermon. The Lamb of God. I want to talk to you this evening about the Lamb of God, but not that sermon. Okay, this is a different one. The passage we just read from the book of Revelation talks about Jesus as the Lamb. Now, this morning at our house, as often happens, the radio got turned on, and I heard the president of Moody Bible Institute preaching from the book of Revelation in a series. He's been at it for some time. And... Uh, he said some things that, of course, I disagreed with and some things I agreed with, but I, I commend him for his courage because I want to confess here, too, I don't think I've ever preached through the book of Revelation. I don't think I've ever preached anything from chapter 6 to chapter 19. I've done the two ends. So uh, i got a lot to learn yet because I can understand some of the first five chapters you read that first chapter of Revelation, and you have wonderful imagery all about Jesus. And you see Jesus lifted high in the first chapter of the book. Then in chapters 2 and 3, you have exhortations to seven different churches of that day, telling about some of the good things and some of the bad things going on in those churches, things that would be true of the churches around here today. 2,000 years later. And the comfort that we can take from those first three chapters of this book is a comfort that Jesus is here living in the midst of his churches. That Jesus is not just far off somewhere, but he's up close for the various congregations of his church, that we're not alone, that Jesus is with us. That's the first three chapters. When you get to chapter 4, then our eyes get lifted to heaven. And we get to see things in chapter 4 that are, are far more wonderful than anything that we experience here on earth. And after we've looked up and seen that in chapter 4, that picture of a throne in heaven we realize that the artist is painting word pictures 
to help us glimpse that, that glorious God on a throne. And with all the church represented by the 24 elders. Now, I, of course, quickly forget many of the details of chapter 4, but, but what I remember is the picture of the church falling down before God in worship. At verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So chapter 4 is a song of celebration about God the creator. And what you see is you walk through life. Janet and I took a walk this afternoon on, along the, the creek, along the prairie path. And, you know, what you can see on a day like this, all that has been designed and brought into being by our God. And then we come to chapter 5, the passage we've just read. And if you got hooked on some of the specifics, you're going to be disappointed because I'm not going to deal with those specifics in this chapter. What I am going to deal with is the idea of Jesus. And we see him first in this chapter as a lion and then a bit later as a lamb. Jesus is the focal point of the chapter, clearly. But we are ones who reap the benefits of who Jesus is in this chapter. We are participants in this chapter as the community, the church. And we're going to talk then about three features of that community. And, and we're people who've been drawn, it says here, from every tribe and all the tongues and all the peoples and all the nations. And then together... The community exists. And three observations about it in the chapter. First, the basis for the community from this chapter. Then the extent of it. And finally, the character of that community in this chapter of Revelation. First of all, then, the basis. What's the basis of us? What's the basis of our community, of our church? Well, we know this from other texts, don't we? It's the blood of the Lamb. But that's the way it's described here. Verse 6, I saw a lamb looking as if had he been slain, standing in the center of the throne. You know, Christians, we, we disagree with one another on many things, maybe not so much within this local church, but across the denominations. But most of us realize that there are two commitments that we need to be agreed on, whatever, whoever we are, and when we name the name of Jesus we must realize our commitment is to him as Savior and as Lord. And then second, that we are committed to the truth that one has to be born again to be in the community. There has to be a new birth from the Holy Spirit. So the basis for the Christian community, as taught here in this chapter, is the blood of Christ, the heart of the gospel, that sinners can only be saved by the death of Jesus on our behalf. That's the point of verse 9. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. I want to pause with that for a moment. Because 
When I think about the issues in 21st century America in the religious community, the biggest issue is this Jesus, this blood of the Lamb. Is it true when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me? Is it true that there is no other name under heaven? Is it true that he is the exclusive way to get to our God? That's the question Americans are asking, isn't it? Some within the church ask that. All those around the church ask that. How can you, in a society which is called to tolerance, how can you have exclusive claims about this Jesus that he is the only way to God? Well, as I've been thinking about this, it was really interesting. I have a, uh, I get a, an email, a, an article every day from a professor at Westminster Seminary in California. Uh, his name is Scott Clark, and he sends me my daily blog. Friday, two days ago, he sent a long blog called No Other Name. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I'm trying to say on Sunday evening. So I'm going to take a little liberty and, and read a bit of what he said. He starts out, Jesus is an intentionally troublesome figure. He said, quote, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This was an outrageous claim when he made it, and it remains so today. Through the history of the Christian faith, people have struggled with this hard truth and have sought some way around it. And then he goes through 20 centuries of ways people did that. And then he says, in the modern period, it has become a liberal or modernist commonplace that, of course, salvation is available to all apart from true faith in Christ. Anyone who denies universalism in public is bound to be denounced as a bigot of the worst sort. As I say, Jesus taking on his own terms is a troubling figure. Well, he goes on for several pages. It was interesting to me that after a bit, he comes back to the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because he saves us from our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in any other. This church is committed to that truth. At the end, he says this. For the medieval church, as for many Christians today, it was tempting to think that Jesus had made salvation possible for those who do their part. In that scheme, Jesus was not so much a savior as a facilitator. In such a scheme, he is reduced to a cosmic doorman, who allows us to enter the presence of God, but who leaves it up to us to stay in. And then, of course, he goes on and refutes that idea. No, the biblical picture is to the contrary. Jesus is not a facilitator. He's a savior. He actually successfully accomplishes what he set out to do, save his people, those whom the Father gave to him, for whom he voluntarily came. He laid down his life for his sheep, all those for whom he intentionally laid down his life, for whom he took it up again, those he saved. 
And finally he says, he shall save his people. That's his name. That's who he is to us, our Savior. All that to defend the text. The text says, you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. But that verse doesn't end there. The rest of the sentence is still there. The first part tells us how we're saved, by his blood. The rest of the sentence tells us that we are saved for incorporation into a community. It says, with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. And so it's the blood of Christ that guarantees that lost sinners are given a new community identity. We become the church of Jesus Christ. So the basis for this community is the blood of the Lamb. And now on to the second point, the extent of it. How big? How wide? The extent of this new community. In Revelation chapter 5, I've already suggested there are two great images. The first is Jesus as lion, the second as lamb. What about those two images? Well, lion, powerful, and as you read the Old Testament, very Jewish. The Messiah that's to come is described as of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, this lion who's coming. And so you and I, knowing that Jesus is the lion, can't forget our Jewish roots. Now, the tendency, of course, of the Jewish people was to think, well, it's just us. It's us exclusively. They alone were the people of God. And when they thought that way, they began missing Old Testament signals that God was interested in more than Jews. Jesus may have been the lion for the Jewish people, but it was broader than that. In our text, then, the image shifts from the lion, the Jewish idea, to the lamb. And a lamb in the scriptures is not identified with one ethnic group or one culture or one nation or one language. And so you start reading the Gospel of John, and John the Baptist introduces this person, Jesus, and he says he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world, far more than Jewish people. Not just ethnic Jews, not any one ethnicity. You may have heard me talk about my grandfather who was an indentured servant. I know I talked at length about him one night here. On the 4th of July, I stood again at his grave out in Iowa. You know, the family's been so fascinated with him because he was an indentured servant, and we have the papers where he was indentured to this Iowa farmer, but we don't even know what country he was born in. And, you know, my sister and I have researched this for decades. We can't find out. Where, where was he born? We don't know and probably never will. You know, it's sort of neat that there is that fuzziness about my ancestry. 
I'll probably never have a clear ethnic or national identity. And maybe that's good. Because it forces me to find my identity in Jesus. You see, in Jesus, I know that I have been included. I have an identity. When Jesus finishes drawing people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, I'm going to be there because I'm a member of the family of Jesus. And let me suggest to you tonight, that's not just a good word for me. That's a good word for you as well. Whatever your heritage is, in terms of language or nationality or ethnicity, the important thing is that you are a member of the family of Jesus. So the basis of this Christian community is the blood of the Lamb. And the extent is worldwide. Every category of people. And that brings us then to the third point, its character. What's this Christian community like? Now that we've been purchased for the community by the blood of the Lamb, and now that we've been brought into the worldwide community of Christians, what do we look like? What's our character? Well, verse 10 speaks to that. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Two weeks ago tonight when I preached here, I talked about Jesus the king. We talked about the kingdom. I'm back to that point again right now. You know, Jesus is king. I'm in his kingdom, but that's not language we use. We don't talk about kings, do we? And yet there are probably some here tonight who remember when Elizabeth became the queen of England. And there may be some others beside the two of us who are fascinated with kings and queens of England. And part of that's because Janet, on both sides of her family, can trace her roots back to England, and we watched that. Part of that may be that a week ago tonight we were in Canada. You're much more aware of the Queen of England when you're in Canada. Part of that may be the baby I saw, the toddler I saw on Facebook this weekend. Did you see the future King of England celebrate his first birthday? Nice picture. Now, of course, he has to survive, what, his great-grandmother, his grandfather, and his father before he gets to be the king. But, you know, potentially, there's going to be a new king of England, now age one. Despite saying all those things, you know, I don't care a whole lot about kings and queens. They're not the center of my attention day by day or, or month by month. I live in the U.S., and we don't talk about such people. But I am grateful that I do have a king, that Jesus is my king, that you and I can be a part of his kingdom. And his kingdom doesn't last just one generation. 
His kingdom is not 50 years or 60 years or even 100 years. What's amazing about the text is it says that you and I are little kings. Jesus is the king, but he's making us into a kingdom where you and I are little kings. And it says that you and I are going to reign on the earth. Usually when people talk about, you know, where they're going to be in the next life, I hear them talk about heaven. And if I'm feeling a little ornery, I resist and say, not me. I'm going to be on the earth. This this text says that. We're going to be little kings on the earth. We're going to reign here. Now, that's exciting. But, of course, it's not nearly as exciting as bowing before King Jesus and expressing worship to him, as we do now in this hour, but as we will do more visibly and more powerfully in eternity after he has returned. The same verse says not only are we little kings, but we are little priests as well. That he's the great priest, always interceding for us, but that we are little priests as we pray for people. So our character, the character of the Christian community from this text is that we are kings and priests. So let me draw a conclusion. What's the application? Well, immediate application is one of worship. I mean, that's, that's all through the chapter, isn't it? Worship through songs for us and prayers and Bible readings and sermons. But the second application that comes out of the text is diversity. As kings and priests, we can't live in isolation, and we don't. We must love the saints of all cultures and nations. For that reason, for one thing this weekend, we grieve for the Christians in the city of Mosul if there are any left in that city tonight, as they finally were evacuated the last few days after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in that city. We must love the saints of all cultures and nations. We must speak out on their behalf when governments and societies treat them as if they were not beneficiaries of the royal blood of Christ. And we must keep working at breaking down the barriers of race and clan within the Christian community. We just came back Friday from being east, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and so on. On an earlier trip, a few years ago, I was remembering that we ended up on a Sunday morning in downtown Boston worshiping in historic Park Street Church, right in the center of the city. Been there for many generations. And I can remember looking around that morning and seeing people from many places in the world. It's been a mission sending and and it's been a receiving church for so many years. You looked around that morning, we didn't all look alike. But we were all there to worship Jesus. 
and it was great. The application is we are not one little group of one little kind of people. We are part of something that is worldwide. This morning I worshiped around the corner, another church. The difference this morning was as you looked around, you saw a whole lot of Chinese teenagers that you usually don't see here as part of a uh, short-term time for a couple of weeks. But it was a good reminder that what goes on in China impacts us and vice versa. What goes on at Mosul impacts us. We are part of something far bigger than what is visible right here this evening. And the blood of Christ then gives us new loyalties, new concerns, and new identities. And so our text from Revelation 5, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. You, Jesus, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Amen.